Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Like Life. Along with Sheena Wagstaff, Brenda Kumar, Emerson Boyer, and Elise Nelson, my guest, the Metropolitan Museum of Arts Luke Sison, is a co-curator of Like Life, Sculpture, Color, and the Body, 1300 to Now, at the Met's Breuer Building through July 22nd. The exhibition features 120 sculptures from the first or second century to the present, and considers how artists have presented the human body, especially with color. The outstanding and highly readable exhibition catalog was published by the Met and is distributed by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $43. On the second segment, with a month left in artist Anne Appleby's exhibition, We Sit Together, The Mountain and Me at the Tacoma Art Museum, we'll listen to my April conversation with her. But first, Luke Sison, after a break. The Guggenheim Museum in New York presents One Hand Clapping, an exhibition exploring our changing relationship with the future. On view through October 21st, One Hand Clapping features commissioned work in a range of traditional and new mediums by five artists, Sao Fei, Duan John Yu, Lin Yilin, Wang Ping, and Samson Young. From paintings to mixed media installations to a virtual reality experience featuring the likeness of basketball star Jeremy Lin, these works challenge visions of a global, homogenous, and technocratic future. One Hand Clapping is the final exhibition of the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Chinese Art Initiative, which offers a platform for artistic experimentation that responds to urgent issues of our time. Learn more at guggenheim.org slash onehandclapping. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. On view at the Pulitzer through August 11th, Mona Hatoum, Terra Inferma, is the artist's first major solo exhibition in the United States in 20 years and comprises more than 30 sculptures and installations. Merging the languages of minimalism and surrealism filtered through a feminist lens, Hatoum subverts the familiar to offer nuanced perspectives on universal human questions. The exhibition has been organized by the Menil Collection Houston and is on view at the Pulitzer in St. Louis through August 11th, 2018. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Kimball Art Museum presents From the Lands of Asia, the Sam and Myrna Myers Collection. Discover exotic costumes and customs, an ocean of treasured porcelain, transcendent Buddhist icons, and the magical allure of jade. Journey through the legendary lands of Asia on view at the Kimball Art Museum through August 19th. Plan your visit at KimballArt.org. And we're back. Luke Sison, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's great to be here. So during your career, you have generally focused on exhibitions of the sort we would expect of a scholar of Italian art. So shows of art in Renaissance Siena or of Renaissance portraiture and, of course, Leonardo. Lifelike is a whole different thing, a multi-millennium look at sculptures of the human body. What was your gateway to being interested in such a broad project and one that went so far beyond your professional work? So I think that where it began was was somewhere quite traditional. I was thinking about a particular Spanish sculptor of my period, Alonso Berruguete, who worked in Italy, perhaps even with Michelangelo, and then returned to Spain and took what he'd learnt of Renaissance style and applied it to the making of, of Christian art in uh, highly Catholic Spain. 
And contemplating him, I realized that actually there's a whole story of uh, polychrome sculpture. So, you know, sculpture colored to look like um, human beings, dressed human beings, undressed human beings that hadn't really been told and that, that somehow needed to be. So that was sort of mulling around in, in my head. And then, and then somebody suggested that maybe it should be a, a Met Breuer show. And I thought, well, okay, I could look beautiful there, but surely this is a, a, a space where we should be thinking about what that long history looks like. And we've talked a great deal at the Met about our unique ability or the, the opportunity we have with our collection and with indeed the different forms of, of expertise to to look at, at a theme over a long period of, of time. I started my conversations with Shina Wagstaff, my co-curator, around hyperrealism to enhance some Ron Muick. And and yet that didn't itself feel quite right. And so so we went on thinking about this 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 theme for for really quite a long time, and I think both of us building up stores of images, ideas around where we might go. Then the green light came, so we were, we were off. One of the most interesting things about the show for me, and really even more so about the catalog, and the catalog is really terrific, is the way both of those address color in sculpture historically, and indeed our current usage of the word color. How did color emerge as a focus or, or interest of the show? Was it there from the start or did it come to the fore as you and your colleagues worked your way into the project? No, it was absolutely there from the beginning. And the working title for the show, one of the several working titles that we had along the way was, was simply polychrome. There was a brief moment when we thought we would look at other kinds of color, strong, bright color, intrinsic color to materials like porphyry or, or, or yellow marble. But in the end, we, we kept coming back to the idea of, of, of how lifelike should a work of art be and, and what were the problems when, when color becomes the engine for realism, if I can put it like that. So with color in mind, let's work our way through what, for me anyway, were some of the most interesting parts of the show and, and the ideas and works that, that built them. The first gallery of the show, I, I guess I should mention first that this is a two-floor show at the Breuer Building on Madison. The first gallery of, of the show is about the presumption of white, and it includes, for example, a first or second century Roman sculpture of Hermes, a Renaissance Bacchus, a 19th century work of American neoclassicism by Hiram Powers, about which we'll talk in a moment. <laughs> How did white come to be presumed as, as, I guess, both an ideal and as how sculpture had always looked? So the key idea of whiteness really emerges in the Renaissance with the rediscovery of, of ancient sculpture underground and generally stripped of the color which was originally applied. And I think that was a very fortuitous discovery. This was a moment when artists were demonstrating their, their status as artists. And so what they needed to do was to make pieces which in a way were deliberately elevated, deliberately different from simple copies of ourselves, and yet which needed at the same time to be highly naturalistic. So in Renaissance Italy, 
patrons, artists declaring themselves as the heirs of ancient Rome, in a sense, were reinventing antiquity for them for themselves. And that became the absolutely dominant mode. It became a, a way of expressing an ideal of humanity that in a way sits above our own messy existences that can become heroic or, or divine, that can express the purity of our of our souls, that can become, as I say, a, about something that that transcends our, our our daily existence. And that's the kind of art that people wanted in their in their galleries and their palaces. It's the kind of from the moment when really Michelangelo was making marble sculpture again for the first time for for the gardens of the cardinals of of, of Rome and, and 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 for Julius's tomb and and some Pope Julius's tomb and so on, then that becomes the, the the dominant mode. I think as well that what we realized was that it's it it's also ideologically charged. It's a a mode of expressing the primacy of a, a certain kind of European beauty. But maybe that moves us towards a, your next question. You know, one of the things I liked about the gallery is it immediately brought to mind uh, Nell Irvin Painter's book, The History of White People, which she opens by saying that she considered titling Constructions of White Americans from Antiquity to the Present. And indeed, her first chapter is about Greek, the Greeks and Greek sculpture, and then she kind of advances from there. So what you and your co-curators do in this first gallery is you establish that classical ideal and then move through a number of different addresses of it, whether that's Hiram Powers and then Fred Wilson and Charlie Ray. Could you maybe outline for us how, you know, in a meeting room or wherever, you and your team decided how to illustrate your idea with those works, animate your idea with that progression of work? So you have to imagine four of us, me, Sheena Wagstaff, Brenda Kumar, and Emerson Boyer, surrounded by little cut-out images which we put on boards. And we probably had about a thousand of these little miniature sculptures that we would arrange and rearrange, that we propose to each other, that we would jettison and rescue and re-include and throw out again. And this was all part of the, the process. Sometimes absolute agreement immediately, sometimes tremendous, ferocious arguments. And but what we were always keen to do was to to look at a section which incorporated both works that were, were monochrome, which were white, and, and to propose whiteness as a as a distinct colour rather than as an absence of colour. And also and to put those with with pieces that that took that that those forms and then applied color to them. And an early idea, for example, just again, a Renaissance piece was we have a work by Antonio Rossellino that's a colored plaster version of a, of a sculpture that's down at the Morgan of, of Madonna and Child painting. And an early idea was to put those two together. This was still probably when the show was going to be a bit more chronologically arranged than it is. And I think that you've, you've already described the, the layout of the show, but one thing that's absolutely crucial to mention is that the historic and the contemporary are put with one another. They're in, in dialogue from, from the outset. And in fact, even before the works that you've described, we really begin with a, a, a piece by Dwayne Hansen that shows an African-American house painter 
whitewashing a wall, so eliminating color, even as he himself um, celebrates color with splashes of paint that, that cover his white overalls. And that's the piece that you meet as you come out of the elevator on the fourth floor of the, of the Met Breuer. So as we, were, as we were pondering this, then we wanted to have uh, pieces which each summed up uh, an important part of the narrative and which celebrated the Met's collection as well. So the three white sculptures that begin and explore the classical tradition, the ancient work um, from our Greek and Roman department, the Renaissance piece from my own department, European Sculpture and Decorative Arts, and then the Hiram Powers, each sum up uh, a moment in that history. And the Hiram Powers in particular was one which then takes the story on a bit since it shows the personification of California at the time of the gold rush, the moment when he is looking at the themes of, of greed and abundance and, and glory and making, in theory at least, an image of a Native American, but turning her into a Roman goddess, essentially, and deracinating her, uh, de-sexing her in that her sexual parts are very broadly described and, so, and where the language is around allegory and emblem rather than her own human fleshy appeal or, 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 or any of that or anything. She's, she's, she's sort of profoundly unreal. Yeah. I mean, as somebody who, who, you know, just wrote a book on, on 1850s forward California in the West, it was a piece that I hadn't thought of or seen in years. And it, I mean, it, it really kind of stunned me. I mean, not only was the native American, kind of genocide, not kind of genocide of uh, underway in California by the time Powers finishes the piece. But but part of Powers's conception is kind of purity and optimism and, and success. And of course, in those years, California was as riven by slavery-related uh, questions and politics and troubles as anywhere else, so much so that you have a state Supreme Court justice sh shooting and killing in a duel a sitting U.S. senator over over it. And then, you know, here in the middle of that is Powers' idealized allegory of California. And to me, that's where the show starts. That's the pivot. That activates the whole show. That here is somebody in a time and place looking at the past, addressing the present, and that we now, 150 years on, are looking at with what we know today of that period. I, I assume that that pivot was more or less intentional. Oh, completely intentional. I mean, it's a work that is disturbingly escapist and and that there is this artist uh, sitting in Rome serving an elite. It's one of the very first pieces of sculpture to come into the Met's own collection. In fact, it's part of our own history as well. And it sums up, in a way, the anti-humane. And that, I think, was why we wanted it. It sums up uh, an arrogance of, of, of the white European tradition. It sums up, too, a deeply conservative attitude to art. And this is, in a powers, I think we're probably loathed being in this show more than any other artist. That gives me, I must say, a bit of a kick every now and then to think about it. And I also... You know, I think he he hated, I mean, this was a moment when the application of, of color 
to white marble sculpture and emulation of what had really happened in antiquity was being debated. And he fiercely rejected this and he, he really he wanted to keep sculpture on that un, in unhuman, inhuman level. So yeah, he's a kind of, I mean, the personification of California is in a way absolutely where the, the debate in the show begins. I, I, think I like its pairing with The Aluminium Girl by Charles Ray, another Californian piece in an odd sort of way, and with something equally fascinating to say about the balancing act between the real and the unreal, between the objectified woman and, the sexual, and her sexual presence. It's, it, to me, at least, it's a, it's a particularly fascinating pairing. And, and two, it speaks to Mbati Kerr's image of her mother, again, a woman of color who has been rendered white by her own daughter and by the act of, of taking a plaster cast, but where every single wrinkle is unforgivingly and yet beautifully rendered. Another of the key themes in the show that's evident right away is earnestness versus transgression. And we see it in the Fred Wilson and we see it in the Rene Magritte there. The Magritte is 1936's The Copper Handcuffs, which I think is Magritte's riff on Matisse's great 1907 Blue Nude, the painting that effectively instigates 20th century painting and a half century of engagement between Matisse and his bunch and Picasso and his bunch. The Magritte, uh, we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, is a plaster tourist market style copy of the Venus de Milo with a, a, a cloth wrapping on her bottom half painted blue. It's wonderfully layered. I, I think through the Matisse, it snickers at Matisse's updating of a classical standard in his blue nude, that of course being the sleeping Ariadne. And I think it suggests that Magritte knew, of, uh, knew that was one of Matisse's sources and that another one was the postcard souvenirs that, I mean, Blue Nude is called Blue Nude Memory of Biskra, and one of Matisse's sources were the, were the postcard souvenirs that Algerian sex workers gave their clients, mostly in the French military. And those postcards were, those postcard souvenirs were blue tinted, were blue printed. So this is all a very long way of asking. Can we point to when the transgression of classical ideals became an important strategy for artists? I mean, I know we think of that as being a 20th century thing, but did it start sooner? It's such a good question. It's absolutely clear that the coloring of sculpture was frowned upon from a remarkably early stage. So it's be interesting to ask whether those people who are deliberately doing it are transgressing or whether they're simply adhering to another visual tradition that is in a way largely lost. So we have in a later section in the show a bust by the Dutch sculptor Van der Schaart and it shows him sort of about a third life size, just his head and shoulders, nude, an unsparing self-portrait, a little bald patch visible at the back and very, very difficult to date in terms of, when, of how you encounter it. But it's a late 16th century piece. And, and yet it's, it's modernity, such an overused and unhelpful word, but it's, modernity feels very striking. What it actually feels is, is timeless. We don't really know why he made this piece. There's not enough that survives to give it context. Is he critiquing the, the idealized bust form? Is he saying this is a true representation of me? Is he then making it more complicated by miniaturizing it? 
we just don't have enough to say. What we can say, I think, with more certainty is that this really begins in a self-conscious way in the late 19th century. In the first half of the 19th century, the experiments with color that were made by Canova, for example, or John Gibson, whose tinted Venus was so roundly rejected when it was shown as late as 1867 in, in London in one of the great exhibitions, that was causing a storm almost without meaning to. But I think it, it was noticed. And so when Degas put the wax Petite Danseuse, of which we have a bronze cast in the show, out on view in the 1880s, he was doing so, I think, with the very self-conscious desire to shock. This was taking a modern subject, a little girl who was regarded as being little more than a sort of working class ballet rat, as they were called, sexually available probably, the, uh, and, and sculpted with a, a directness and a, of a dress you know, in terms of her pose and, and so on, which was, which was deeply shocking. And then I think that deliberate attempt to insert a modern vision of humanity into this stuffy world of marble nudes was taken up in a different way. So then at the end, end of the 19th century, in the age of Freud, with, with symbolist sculptors like Fernand Knopf, whose works are mostly too fragile to travel, but also uh, Max Klinger, whose great new Salome is in the, in the exhibition, or even with Gauguin, then the creation of what were known as idols of perversity, the, the femme fatale, the, the, the sexually predatory woman who, who was present and profoundly present in, in the imaginations of these, of these artists, are, were deliberately made to, to transgress. I mean, they're, they're, they're moving into territory around the subconscious and around particularly female sexuality, which were meant to address that kind of smooth marble body with no real inner life, either anatomical or erotic. The next section of the show I wanted to talk about is the section about or titled likeness. And just as the Hiram Powers grates because it feels so earnest in its mimicry that it seems empty, at least to me, this next section in the show is in some ways also about earnestness. And maybe the way to get at that question is through a sculpture that you install as and attribute to Donatello and kind of the sculpture with which you almost <laughs> open your catalog essay. Not, I mean, you also open the catalog essay with, with uh, Mauricio Catalan, but you get to Donatello in a hurry. Uh, what is that sculpture, the Donatello? Why is the attribution contested or thorny? And how does that story relate to the question of likeness and, 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 and well, earnestness? So this is a bust of a Florentine uh, elite politician called Niccolò da Uzzano. It normally resides at the Bargello in Florence, so with many, many companions by, by Donatello, you know, arguably the, the, the greatest sculptor of the 15th century, certainly in Italy, and always regarded as being, in a way, the first Renaissance sculptor, the great precursor to, to Michelangelo himself. And... Most of his works are in, in bronze or in marble. This, however, is in, in clay and it's colored. And it shows this man gazing upwards, his head and shoulders, 
garbed in a kind of classical toga. And the face taken seemingly, to use the technical evidence that has been examined, from either a death mask or a life mask. So in other words, a mold taken from his own face, his own head. This was always regarded as a pioneering portrait by Donatello until really quite recently. And then I think its use of what was regarded as a kind of unacceptable mechanized mode of likeness, so a cast rather than the, the glory of the observing eye or the inspiration of the chisel or the, or the modeler's tool, that felt as if it was going to count this piece out as a work by this pioneering genius of the Renaissance, of the classical revival. It sits counter to that trend in, in the analysis, particularly of uh, the scholar Francesco Cagliotti. I truly believe it is by Donatello. I think it's an extraordinary work which actually brilliantly combines the reference to the antique with a reference to a range of other works that were being made at the time, like the wax donor portraits, votive portraits that were being made for the church of Santissima Annunziata. So pieces that were likenesses of citizens, of visiting dignitaries, of the, the great and the good, and which were arranged in this church to be permanently at prayer while these, the people themselves were getting around, going about their daily business. So this is, this is material that's almost entirely lost. And I think what, what we should do, and really in a way what the show is trying to do, at least on the historic side, is to say there was a much broader, much more ample visual culture that went on from the Renaissance through the 19th century. And that, partly because so many of these pieces have, have disappeared, they were made of wax or plaster or cloth or materials that simply decayed or, or, or deteriorated, then we don't understand where to place the Donatello. So in terms of traditional art history, it sits at the edge of of a tradition. It feels a little bit superstitious and, and maybe even a bit retardataire. But actually, if you place it right at the center of this larger tradition, uh, this larger this larger visual culture, then then what you're seeing is Donatello grabbing from everywhere in order to create this extraordinary vivid portrait of somebody who'd either maybe just died or was in an advanced old age. You also use this Donatello in your catalog essay to raise the uh, air quotes problem of colored sculpture. And in your essay, you use a bunch of clever and thoughtful locutions to avoid the word problem, my favorite of which is probably detrimental popularity. <laughs> so what are some of these so-called problems with colored sculpture in this period and what they suggest about or don't suggest about seriousness? Are, are those issues in that moment or do they carry forward? I think they're still incredibly current, and I'll talk about just a few of them. So what we're looking at here is, is a kind of art that sits outside the art gallery, outside the museum, outside the palace. These are pieces that were made for churches, for ships' prows, for waxwork museums, fairgrounds, 
almost. You know, there's a whole range of places which are not necessarily associated with with art and certainly not with high art. But these works were profoundly accessible and doesn't mean, of course, that they weren't thoughtful. By being realistic and by sometimes by being hyper-realistic, they appeal much more broadly than a work which demanded knowledge of the classical tradition, which where people were expected to recognize quotations of, for a sculpture of Venus or the famous dying Gaul or whatever. These were works that were intended to inspire very human responses, pity, shock, horror, lust, any of those things which in a sense, we spend a lot of time eliminating from our minds as we walk around art galleries, or at least in the past we were supposed to. So I think people always feel rather guilty when they're going, or foie, or whatever, when they're looking at a, a work of art in somewhere like the Met. And what we're talking about here is, is works that deliberately invite that. So we're setting up, in other words, sculpture that was made for a social, political and economic elite that was therefore meant to be understood by actually rather a few people and where critics to a large degree were apologists for that, that mode of viewing and that way of owning certain kinds of sculpture against pieces which were popular, which were accessible, to use the slightly grim word that we use these days, and which, which, as I say, spoke to people about themselves in a, in, a, in, a very, in a very direct way. They weren't, therefore, pieces which could be allowed into the, into the art museum. And indeed, their own success becomes a a problem. And I think that goes on being true. So I think that there's a certain kind of snobbishness about, you know, hyper-realist sculpture. Ron Muick, for example, let's talk about him. He was regarded as having gate-crashed the sensation show at the Royal Academy, where we first became aware of his work. And, and then, you know, one of his most celebrated pieces was in the Millennium Dome in, in London, in Greenwich, you know, so a place which was about popular spectacle, which was the inheritor, if you like, of the of the great exhibition culture or of the almost the visit to the wax museum. Now, in my view, Ron Muick deals very profoundly with the human condition, with issues around death and with and birth. And we've finished the the exhibition with uh, a work that Brenda Kumar selected, a, a sleeping old woman, and. It has a, a directness of address. Uh, it has a, a kind of simplicity of, of affect that is, has been regarded as problematic. It's been regarded as somehow being shallow or thoughtless or, or, or un, unprofound, unideal. And, and I think that that, ha, that whole history of, of rejection has a, is, is a long one. And I think it's one that also casts a long shadow. I want to come back in a moment to to this kind of figurative Trump loy and its relationship with art history. But before we leave the section of the show about likeness, there was one other thing I wanted to raise, and that's about how 
beginning in this part of the show and then really staying in it until the end, we see artists using a striking range of materials such as colored marble and tinted wax and gesso and even human bones and hair. So today, obviously, we're used to artists using everything and anything to make anything and everything, even, you know, refrigerating, cooling things like in the Mark Quinn in your show. So I don't think it registers as much for us now as it did when work such as Thomas Southwood Smith and Jacques Talrich's auto icon of Jeremy Bentham, say, were made. So what do we know about how the question of color and polychrome and realism and sculpture were impacted by the way artists began to broaden their range of materials to make works that were colorful and lifelike? First of all, I should say that I'm not sure there was a broadening of materials. I think there's always been a very broad range of materials used. Doesn't always survive. Exactly. So this is, a, this is an issue around survival as much as, as anything else. And again about what was considered to be important and respectable and serious, to use your completely correct term. But I think that what we're looking at here is the way in which materials can be exploited to resemble the human being, but even more than that, charged with meaning. And I guess above all, we're talking about wax and other organic materials as both literal and physical, but also metaphorical substitutes for human flesh. And I got very fascinated by the history of wax sculpture, how it sometimes is used as the way of modeling an extraordinarily important piece of bronze. And I use important in very much in, quote, in quotation marks, but also how famously the witch's doll might be made of wax and stuck with pins as a, a piece of profound, superstitious, magical, mystical attack on a, on a fellow human being. And then everything that sits in between, the, the waxwork of the celebrity, the, the way in which wax is used uh, for votive offerings, it's, it's an organic medium, it, it decays itself, it can be melted, it can be molded, it's both soft and hard, as we know from candles and what happens to them. It's, and all of those things seem to me to be, to be absolutely sort of fundamental to our understanding of the pieces that are made from them. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a medium with multivalent meaning. And I think that's also true of, of some of the other, you know, often cheap and, and, and vulnerable materials that are used, like textiles and cloth, like plaster, uh, even clay. And, and all of those things have a kind of impermanence and fragility, which are human. I mean, which are like us, which are, are like the human body itself, and which fight against that idea that is so strong in the production of serious high art, which I still love, by the way, and which I think is incredibly valuable and important as a, as a, as a, as a way that w w which we view ourselves, but which is about denying the impermanence of, of, of the human state, which is about making the, the body permanent and immutable and unchangingly beautiful. And these are, these are sculptures which are about something else, and their, and their materiality is absolutely key to that. My guest is Luke Sison. We'll be right back after a break. 
The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2018, the fourth edition of its biennial featuring artists working throughout greater Los Angeles. Organized by Hammer curators Ann Elgood and Aaron Cristoval, Made in L.A. 2018 fills the entire museum and features the work of 33 artists. Through drawings, paintings, sculpture, textiles, performance, video, photography, and installations, many newly commissioned expressly for the biennial, these artists exemplify the diverse and creative landscape of Los Angeles today. Find details and a full summer of related programs at hammer.ucla.edu. Made in LA 2018 is on view now through September 2nd at the Hammer Museum. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Precarity, a new three-channel video installation created by Jonna Comfra, the London-based artist and filmmaker. Precarity explores the city of New Orleans through the remarkable life and times of Charles Buddy Bolden, the first person known to have explored the sonic tonalities of the music we now call jazz. Beginning in 1900, Buddy Bolden was the most popular musician in New Orleans, celebrated for his raucously loud coronet and down-and-dirty style. King Bolden reigned until 1907, when he was permanently committed to the state insane asylum in Jackson, Louisiana with schizophrenia. Precarity presents a sonographic and visual history of Bolden and his legend, the emergence of jazz, and the incomparable city of New Orleans. Precarity is part of the Nasher Museum's permanent collection. It's on view through September 2nd at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Celebrate wine and inspiring conversation at the Getty Villa on June 2nd and 16th. Learn more about the exhibition Plato in L.A., Contemporary Artists' Visions, Hear UCLA classicist Catherine Morgan discuss Plato's relevance today and enjoy wine and appetizers with fun-loving philosophers in an enchanting outdoor setting. Find out more about this perfect summer event and get tickets at getty.edu 360. And now back to my conversation with Luke Seiss. A moment ago, you mentioned the National Gallery of Canada's Ron Muick that's at the very end of the show. There's a section in the exhibition called Desire for Life, in which what I might badly call the figurative trompe l'oeil is examined. How important, if not foundational, is Spanish and German, particularly polychromed religious figures, in introducing or maintaining the import of, of hyper-realistic painted sculpture into the canon and, and public discourse? So I think you might actually ask that question the other way around. For so long, the Spanish tradition has been marginalized or ignored. We've really only just started buying Spanish sculpture. For the matter, there was one significant piece here before uh, my arrival six years or, or so ago. And I think partly it was it was marginalized because, again, it looked like pieces which didn't sufficiently resemble our standard notion of, of, of art. So when it came to be re-explored, most famously in a show at the National Gallery called The Sacred Made Real, curated by Xavier Bray, there was a tendency to classify it as, as hyper-realist, which some of it is, but some of it isn't. So on the whole, it's much less about that space of the uncanny, that are you looking at something alive or, or not, 
it's much more about a direct human appeal, which is then tempered often by some very deliberate artistic interpolation and effect. So very rarely do you see a piece that doesn't have some proclaimed artistic ingredient, like the carving of, of beautiful hair in a way that isn't meant to resemble real hair, or above all draperies, which behave in an often marvellous and baroque way, which is not the same as the real clothing that, that is placed on a work by Dwayne Hansen or John D'Andrea. Now, that said, there are pieces that, that do more. You know, so we have a, a piece, a sculpture of, of the Dead Christ by Gregorio Fernandez, which uses glass eyes, bull's horn for the fingernails, uh, and so on. It combines that with these amazing carved draperies. So I think it's always in those works about a kind of to and fro, uh, a balancing act, a between the notion of something that reminds you it's a made religious image and that you can't worship it too much, and works which which were intended to convince you of their of their of their humanity. I would say, therefore, that and I should add that the church was deeply suspicious of when the when the works became too real. It's another ingredient of the suspicion of the of the excessively mimetic. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that, because one of the really interesting parts of your catalog essay is where you discuss how Renaissance and post-Renaissance sculptors were, to use your word, punished for using polychrome. And I think that that's, that, that, that question of, of whether or not it's okay to do that kind of sets up the last several sections of the show. So what was, I guess, particularly for the church, the problem with polychroming in earlier centuries? Why was it controversial? The 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 point of setting up an image of a of a saint or, or of, of Christ in in a church is to inspire the viewer to move spiritually beyond that image and to the essence of of Christ himself or, or of the saints. So realism can get in the way of that. You can start thinking about these figures as, as too human, and that particularly is the case when you're dealing with, for example, the, the naked body of Christ or of the Mary Magdalene or of, above all, perhaps St. Sebastian, where a kind of more earthly desire can set in and that desire for spiritual redemption can become somewhat lessened. And in essence, what we're talking about here is, is idolatry where the worshipper starts worshipping the object rather than the idea that is encapsulated in that object. It sits at the, at the heart of the, the schism in the church in the 16th century that, that caused the huge divide between Protestantism and Catholicism and their different attitudes to the use of images in sacred spaces. And so what we're, what we're dealing with here is, is a problem which I think sits again at the heart of the, of the Western tradition, a problem whereby realism gets in the way of the spiritual. As you note in your essay, polychromed sculpture, and actually as, as Xavier Bray really showed in his The Sacred Made Real show that you noted a moment ago, polychromed sculpture was often used in spectacle, be that theater or religious processions, where you know places where there is broad public participation where the meaning of a sculpture 
was meant to be at its most clear and its most democratic and its most accessible. And I thought that there were a couple places in the show where the idea that color created an intentional accessibility was carried forward by artists in really interesting ways. And I think one of those places was where you installed the Degas you mentioned earlier, facing down another very colorful work. What was that colorful work and what is that moment of juxtaposition you created and why did why did y'all choose to do that? <laughs> so this is a moment where the Degas, which is now, I suppose, uh, every little girl's fantasy ballerina, is rendered problematic again by its juxtaposition with a work by Yinka Shonabari, MBE. And Shonabari, as you know, is a British-Nigerian artist who's taking taking on the Western canon, in a way, looking at portraits of 18th century nobles, and in this case, at Degas' Petite Danseuse, which he remakes as a figure wearing the wax cloth that is provided to so many West African stores by Europeans. This new Petite Danseuse has no head, and so... The Inkishonabari is looking at the whole sculptural fragment, but also at the notion of the execution of a work that into which we can project so many human qualities. And she is a, a stealthy assassin. She's holding a dueling pistol behind her back and is in a way feels as if she's about to aim it at the Dugar. And then maybe even beyond the Dugar, the Charles Ray mannequin which has his own genitals dangling where no mannequin normally has genitals and so the the shonabari is a critique in a sense of the of the doga but it's also a work in which the the power and the problem of the doga in the first instance when it was first made is rediscovered was that an easy pairing for y'all to decide on or were y'all worried maybe that that was curators combining two artworks to make one curator work? Do you know, I think there's quite a lot of moments where curators have combined two artworks to make a, not a single work exactly, but certainly places where, where dialogue happens. And, you know, we began this conversation by talking about my earlier shows, which were sometimes instructive in the sense that they were you know, telling a, a, a story of art in Siena, for example, and sometimes more hands-off, as in the Leonardo, which was carefully curated, but which felt, I think, for visitors like a, a kind of a submersion in the, in the artist's personality. Here we were, we were making arguments and making points. We were not setting out to close down in any way an argument, as, as Shina Wagstaff always calls this a, a propositional show, and I think that's absolutely right. But there needed to be moments where the works could be thought about separately, but which were, where they were absolutely uh, addressing one another across time. I mean, I think what we've been wrestling with here is what a, a, a transhistorical show can say, that is is real and isn't simply this looks a bit like this and let's put them together and hope that they um, speak to each other in some way. This is is one work very much responding to the other and 
it helps us understand the the earlier piece in a in a way that feels fresh and yet that feels fresh and is yet actually very close to how Degas would have expected his audience to respond. Another place in the show where it works really well is where you juxtapose a polychromed 15th century German crucifix that is now in Stuttgart with Lucio Fontana's abstracted ceramic and terracotta crucifixes, where you have this moment where ideas of democratic access and the artistic dialogues and practices of a contemporary elite in the 20th century kind of come together and compete with each other, which was one of my favorite moments in the show. I'm glad you like that moment. I, I like it too. I think it does a lot of things, that, that juxtaposition. You know, there's that, that feeling that you're looking at a Christ where in a late medieval mode, the, the blood, the gore, the, 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 the wounds that he's suffered become both, inc- they're really beautiful in a way. They're almost abstracted. And yet, you know, what you're looking at is the blue of veins and the, the drip of, of blood. And, and I think Fontana, you know, after all working in a, in a Catholic country, is absorbing some of that, making that, that flesh and blood out of clay and, and glaze. And that's, that to me, is a, is, a, is a moment where the notion of flesh becomes almost um, abstract um, in both works. Two more things. Virtually every section of the show makes a point of addressing how sculptors constructed ideas of race and gender and how artists in the 20th and 21st centuries then deconstructed those earlier ideas, often by using uh, the very forms that were used to build up racist or stereotypical or sexist or otherwise problematic constructions of race and gender. And for me, I I think my two favorite were, were probably the 2006 Fred Wilson in the first gallery and the 1971 Nancy Grossman later on. We'll have images of both of those on manpodcast.com. So I think art goers today quite often think of modern and contemporary works from the point of view of the present. But you're someone whose expertise and professional background is, is you know, 500 years earlier. Are there works from the last 100 years that Either you think your professional background has given you particularly new and interesting ways to think about, or or does it work in the other direction, where seeing and having the opportunity to think about for many months now works like the Wilson and the Grossman, do they give you new ideas or insights about about you know 16th century Siena or something? I would say very much both. What's been really wonderful for me is seeing how um, artists working, as you say, in the last 40, 50 years in particular, have taken some of these visual traditions and turned them upside down, but also understood them in a very profound way as they're doing so. So while they're critiquing, as you say, the the, the stereotypes of the past. At the same time, they're also understanding how these works communicated and continue to communicate. And that's been really wonderful. So I love actually the moment where Jeff Koons takes the Palmes or the Christ on the Donkey and take and turns him into Buster Keaton as one of his banality series. I think what Koons is doing there actually is 
reminding us of several things. One is that this is a, a sculpture which was not meant for a, a, a museum. It sits beautifully at the, at the cloisters at the moment, but it should be rumbling through the streets of Manhattan. And as part of a kind of popular entertainment, really, as much as Buster Keaton was. At the same time, it reminds us that Buster Keaton himself was an inaccessible figment of the imagination, if you like, a, a silent figure on a flickering screen with no color, who's now been embodied in, in three dimensions and is, 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 is sort of present in our, in our lives in a way that the original Buster wouldn't have been and that Christ himself isn't normally either. So, you know, that was for me a, a wonderful learning experience in, in, in both directions. And I, I found that revelatory. And I think that artists were often ahead of the game. I think these are works that we have sometimes dismissed because we thought their quality wasn't high enough in terms of the traditional ways we judge sculpture that we thought were part of you know, non-art historical traditions that we might want to put with material culture or visual, visual culture rather than art. And you know, so certainly this, this has helped me go back to the art of the past maybe include a little bit more. I've always liked, I must say, moving between media. I love the fact that my remit at the Met incorporates not just sculpture, but decorative arts. And so, you know, I love the fact that I'm responsible for sculpture in, in marble and bronze, but also in, in porcelain, which I think is another key medium that we explore in the, in the show. I really feel that this is a, is a conversation that goes that goes both ways. And I certainly, as I say, benefited from looking at the art of the past through the eyes of the artists of now, and equally understanding the art of the present as part of a continuous tradition. Luke Sison, thanks for the show and thanks for speaking with me. It's been a great pleasure. The critically acclaimed exhibition Adrian Piper, A Synthesis of Intuitions, 1965-2016, to is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Bringing together nearly 300 works, it offers a rare opportunity to experience Adrian Piper's provocative and wide-ranging artwork, which directly addresses gender, race, xenophobia, and more recently, social engagement and self-transcendence. Get more info at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Eve Loris Cohen, Meeting Ground, at its downtown location from April 19th through September 2nd. For Loris Cohen's first solo museum presentation on the West Coast, the artist takes as his starting point MCASD La Jolla's current expansion, a construction endeavor involving the conversion of Sherwood Auditorium into a multi-purpose gallery. On the occasion of Sherwood's disappearance, the artist is engaged in an excavation of the history of the auditorium, and, in turn, of the museum itself. For more information, visit www.mcasd.org. Welcome back. Now my April conversation with Ann Appleby. She's showing new work in We Sit Together, The Mountain and Me at the Tacoma Art Museum. It's on view through July 8th. The exhibition was curated by Rock Hushka, and I wrote for the exhibition catalog. 
Appleby's work is held by numerous museums, including the Portland Art Museum, the Denver Art Museum, the Berkeley Art Museum, and the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Anne Appleby, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hey, Tyler. The exhibition in Tacoma features new work, all of which starts in or comes from a very specific place and geography. What is that place? That place would be the Elkhorn Mountains in Montana, where I have lived for 40 years. Something, something like that. Give us an idea of, of what that place is like, both in terms of topography and in terms of uh, trees and plants and shrubs and flora. Uh, it's very mountainous. I live in the foothills of the Elkhorn and Crow Peak, which are, I believe, about 10,000 feet. And I'm about 5,200 feet. So... I'm in in forest. I'm in Doug fir. I'm in ponderosa pine. I'm in lodgepole. There's some spruce. There's a few cottonwoods and aspen. So an unusual amount of tree diversity, really. Well, for this elevation, it's it's pretty normal. And there's it's also sort of a wetlands. There's lots of springs and. These uh, drainages that come off the the big peaks are boggy, and there's uh, there's moose, and there's lots of elk, of course, and uh, willow, you know, things like that for them to eat. They eat a lot of that. So how does all of that flora make its way into your work? Are you making paintings that are rooted in the entirety of the forest, or do you focus on specific species, even specific trees? I usually like to paint in in groupings so that I might paint the plants and trees that grow along a creek bank, which would be the riparian zone. It's that little buffer zone that surrounds where the water comes through, and it acts as a like a filter system, and so, for example, I have done that before. I find that to be I find riparian zones really fascinating because the the flora there is very different from what once it breaks into the forest. It's you know it's a totally different thing. So that's been kind of interesting. I'll also work with I've worked with medicinal plants. I've worked with seasonal ideas. So yeah, I'll do a spe- I do specific plants, but I might put them in sort of the ecosystem that they belong in or I might just do it seasonally. And for the show at the Tacoma Art Museum, I pretty much did all the the trees and that you would see in the video. Well, let's start with the video then. What does the video show? And as far as I can recall, this is the first video you've made. Why did you choose to do a video? I chose to do it. I had been thinking about video, and I'm very intimidated by the technology of video making. So I just thought I'd start to experiment with it a little bit. And, it, you know, where I live... I'm pretty isolated, and there was a really big snowstorm, early snow. I think it was the first one of the year. I think it came October 5th, 
it, you know, it was really like a big blizzard outside. And then the power just went out in my house. And I was like, well, okay, what am I going to do? So I just sat and looked out the window and watched it. And, you know, I get a feeling of, it's very primal, like it's kind of like you're in survival mode, even though I'm, I'm in a house. I'm like, okay, I don't have any water, I have no electricity, I have no communication, I don't have internet, I don't have radio. And it's really, I don't know, in this day and age, it seems really interesting to be cut off like that. I, that happens more and more to people with natural disasters. But it happens here quite a bit. So I was really interested in, in that feeling. And I decided to get my camera and set up the tripod and record that snowstorm. And as that was happening, I noticed how the trees, see, everything seems apparently still with the exception of the falling snow. And then if you really pay attention, the trees really start to kind of shift a little bit and then pretty soon they're really shifting and you can see the relationship that they have with one another. It's almost like they're leaning into each other and it's almost like they're communicating, which I'm sure they are. And it's like they are dancing. So I really like those aspects, the conceptual aspect of that, and also that kind of relationship that the trees have with one another because they have it all the time. That is kind of what happened. And then when I started watching the video closely, I thought, wow, this would be so cool to really enlarge it so that it was almost life-size. And it gave me and the viewer a sense of almost like the Walt Disney, what's the word, where we put our human thing into into other the things. anthropomorphic dancing trees or something from uh, exactly I don't remember yeah. what the Disney cartoon was but I can picture it <laughs> yeah that's what me too I can't either but <laughs> I was really interested in that idea and um, I actually made the video five years ago and just you know looked at it and thought about it and when I was offered the show at Tacoma I thought I'm going to use it. And so consequently, the paintings are built around that because all the tree species that I painted as individuals are within that video. The video, of course, is black and white, but the trees aren't. The way the trees in the video move also kind of worked for me as a as, as reminding me how my eyes move around your gridded paintings. How one color leads the eye to the next, and then once you get to the next, your eye kind of sticks on that panel because because there there's depth and many colors within each panel. So maybe maybe using 2017's Douglas fir as an example, that's a six-panel painting. How do you hope and want the eye to move and land on on one of the panel paintings? You know, I think we've been trained in the Western world to to analyze things. And so when people approach a six-panel painting, I think they they kind of 
intellectually try to figure out what's going on. And then, oh, well, which color do I like, you know, which color relates to me? And, you know, they try to break it down. They try to deconstruct it, and they try to figure out how these relationships work. And I'm really interested in having the thing, the painting work as a whole, so that it's impossible to figure that out. And so eventually the viewer will just give up on that kind of, you know, sink into the painting and experience it as, a, it as a whole, which is, I think, the way we kind of look at the forest or we look at a mountain. You know, the mountains is composed of a whole bunch of different elements, but we just see what, you know, the image of what we say a mountain is, unless if we hike in it. Then we got, get to see the the variations and the ecosystem and the way these various, you know, things of life, actually, the things that are alive there, work together and function together to make a whole. So Douglas Fir is a six-panel painting. How do you build up each surface, how, and, and how does that impact how we, how we see it? I'm really interested in the cycle of trees. I think that they can be used as a metaphor for the cycle of any other life. So often there'll be, for example, there'll be maybe a a new pine cone, and then it'll turn to a brown pine cone. Or there'll be the tip of a fir that's like screaming green, and it'll turn to a dark leaf. So the underpainting is built around what came before. So if the brown pine cone is brown or, you know, rust color, I might start with a really kind of pale green to build up that, go from there, go through like the cycle of how that pine cone develops, I guess is the best way to say it. Develops into a tree. Well, no, it develops from like a little bud thing into a, a mature pine cone, which is a seed. Hmm. So not all the way through its development as a tree? No. Ah. That's big. (laughs) (laughs) But the idea is there. I think conceptually I'm kind of about that. And when I first started making color field paintings, I did a series that was called The Dancing Ground, and it kind of went with the idea of whatever life has gone before goes into the soil, into the earth, and makes, you know, a luscious thing for new life. It's where the seed can land. So it's kind of like life and death. The exhibition also includes a couple of much larger paintings. So instead of, so the the, the gridded paintings are on panel, the larger paintings are on canvas, and they're, they're titled Mountain, Mountain One, Mountain Two, Mountain Three. And instead of showing, say, an individual species, they, at least for me, they kind of refer toward a a, a much broader landscape. So not just one species of trees, but trees, uh, and not just trees, but trees as they exist in the landscape, you know, with the mountain as part of the landscape. What were you interested in doing with the mountain paintings? I think that goes back to the idea of the wholeness of a mountain. And I was very interested in the verticality, 
because where I live, you either go up or you go down. So that kind of viewpoint of walking through a forest and also hiking, it's kind of how do you navigate around trees and how do you navigate to get to a higher point, which... You know, it takes a little bit of logic, and it took, and it takes some reading. You have to be able to read the, the forest, and you have to be able to read your path as you pick it through, you know, as you pick it, your way through the trees and up. And I was really interested in that idea. You know, I think it references the title of the show, We Sit Together, The Mountain and Me, because I've walked around here a lot, and I know it very well, and you know, I can, for me, when I look at the paintings, I can reference, okay, if I wanted to get from this meadow up to the top of that ridge, this is how I would pick my way through it. So I'm really interested in that idea. It's a weird mapping of landscape in a, in a way. You know, it, it's funny you, you, you put it that way, because for me, the, the, there is movement within those paintings. I read there as being breezes moving through the trees, which kind of create these shadowy painted echoes on the surface of the painting. There's also the feeling of walking in the forest. You know, there's the smell of it, and there's the breeze, and there's the rustling of the tree boughs, and there's the wildlife that lives there. There's all of that. And I think that's what I was trying to put into those landscapes. I'm really interested in the idea of landscape as not not as the human being standing back and looking at the mountain, as I talked about, as a whole, but the experience of being in the mountain or being in the forest. So I really was trying to work with the idea of the body experiencing being in trees, being in the forest, and that sort of relationship that I think is, I've always been about that with landscape. I think it's very different than looking at a vignette of a landscape and actually being in it. You know, one of the things I noticed about my experience with the paintings on the wall in Tacoma is that to really feel like I was seeing them, I had to walk back and forth in front of them. Something about the painting motivated me to move so that I could feel like I was having a fuller experience of it. Oh, that's great. That's great. I, when I uh, make the, the more reductive color field landscapes, I often use the scale. And for a long time, and I still do, use kind of a, a triptych that's made of three portals that would be human scale. So they look like sort of like a rectangle, like doors. And I'll hang three of those together. And when I first started using that format, I used it to reference the human body in the landscape. So I'm very interested in that idea. Awesome. Ann Appleby, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.